as a result of all the hurrying and scampering, and every now and again the men found that they had worked themselves right out of a job. Several times during the summer the firm had scarcely anything to do, and nearly everybody had to stand off for a few days, or even weeks. When Newman got his first start in the early part of the year, he'd only been working for about a fortnight when, well, with several others, he was stood off. Fortunately, however, the days after he left Rushton's, he was lucky enough to get a start for another firm, Driver and Botchit, where he worked for nearly a month, and then he was again given a job at Rushton's, who happened to be busy again. He didn't have to lose much time, because he finished up for Driver and Botchit on a Thursday night, and on the Friday he was interviewed by Misery, who told him that they were about to recommence a fresh job on the following Monday morning at six o'clock, and that he could start with them then. So, this time Newman was only out of work the Friday and the Saturday, which was another stroke of luck, because, well, it often happens that a man has to lose a week or more after finishing up for one firm before he gets another job. All through the summer... Crass continued to be the general colour man, most of his time being spent at the shop, mixing up colours for all the different jobs. He also acted as a sort of lieutenant to Hunter, who, as the reader has already been informed, was not a practical painter. When there was a price to be given for some painting work, Misery sometimes took Crass with him to look it over and to help him to estimate the amount of time and material it would take. Crass was in thus a position of more than ordinary importance, not only being superior to the hands, but also ranking above other sub-foremen who had charge of the jobs. It was Crass and these sub-foremen who were to blame for most of the scamping and driving, because, well, if it had not been for them, neither Rushton nor Hunter would have known how to scheme the work. Of course, Hunter and Rushton wanted to drive and scamp, but not being practised men, they would not know how to if it had not been for Crass and the others who put them up to all the tricks of the trade. Crass knew that when the men stayed till half-past seven, they were in the habit of ceasing work for a few minutes to eat a mouthful of grub about six o'clock. So, he suggested to Misery that it was not possible to stop this. It would be a good plan to make the men stop work altogether, from half-past five till six, and lose half an hour's pay. And to make up the time, instead of leaving off at 7.30, they could work till eight. Misery had known of and winked at the former practice because he knew that the men could not work all that time without something to eat but Press's suggestion seemed a much better way, and it was adopted. When the other masters in Mugsborough heard of this great reform, well, then, they all followed suit, and it became the rule in the town that whenever it was necessary to work overtime for the men to stay till eight instead of, say, half-past seven as formerly, and they got no more pay than before. Previous to this summer, it had been the almost invariable rule to have two men in each room that was being painted. But Crass pointed out to Misery that, well, under such circumstances, they wasted time, 
just talking to each other. And they also acted as a check on one another. Each of them regulated the amount of work he did by the amount that the other did. And if the job took too long, it was always difficult to decide which of the two men was to blame. But if they were made to work alone, each of them would be on his mettle. He would not know how much the others were doing. And the fear of being considered slow in comparison with the others, well, that would make them all tear into it as fast as they could. Misery thought this a very good idea. So the solitary system was introduced, and as far as practical, one room, one man, became the rule. They even tried to make the men distemper large ceilings single-handed. And they succeeded in one or two cases, but after several ceilings had been spoilt and had to be washed off and done all over again, well, they gave that up. But nearly all the other work has now been arranged on the solitary system, and it worked splendidly. Each man was constantly in a state of panic as to whether the others were doing more work than himself. Another suggestion that Crass made to Misery was that the sub-foreman should be instructed never to send a man into a room to prepare it for painting. If uh, if you send a man into a room to get it ready, said Crass, well, he makes a meal of it. He spends as much time messing about, rubbing down and stopping up, as he would take to paint it. But, he added, with a cunning leer, give him a bit of putty and a little bit of glass paper and the paint at the start, and he gets it in his mind that he's going to go in there to paint it. And he doesn't even mess about that much over, over preparing it, you see? Well, these are other suggestions, and all sorts of devices for scamping and getting over the work were schemed out by Crass and the other sub-foreman who put them into practice and showed them to Misery and Rushton in the hope of carrying favour with them and being kept on. And between the lot of them, they made life a veritable hell for themselves and the hands and everybody else around them. And the mainspring of it all was the greed and selfishness of one man who desired to accumulate money. For this was the only object of all the driving and the bullying and hatred and cursing and unhappiness to make money for Rushton, who evidently considered himself a deserving case. It's sad and discreditable, but nevertheless true, that some of the more selfish of the philanthropists often became wary of well-doing, and they lost all enthusiasm in the good cause. At such times they used to say that they were bloody well fed up with the whole business. I'm tired of tearing our bloody guts out for the benefit of other people. And every now and then some of these fellows would chuck up the work and go on the booze, sometimes stopping away for two or three days or a week at a time. And then, when it was all over, they came back, very penitent, to ask for another start. Well, they generally found that their places had all been filled. If they happened to be good sloggers, men who made a practice of tearing their guts out when they did work, they were usually forgiven. And after being admonished by misery, they were permitted to resume work with the understanding that if it ever occurred again, they would get the infernal 
which means the final and the irrevocable sack. There was once a job at a shop that had been a high-class restaurant kept by a renowned Italian chef. It had been known as Macaroni's Royal Italian Café. Situated on the Grand Parade, of course, it was a favourable resort of the elite, who frequented it for afternoon tea and coffee and for little suppers after the theatre. It had plate-glass windows and resplendent with gilding and marble-topped tables with snow-white covers and vases of flowers and all the other protuberances of glittering cut glass and silver. The obsequious waiters were in evening dress, and the walls were covered with lofty plate-glass mirrors in carved and gilded frames, and at certain hours of the day and night an orchestra consisting of two violins and a harp discoursed selections of classical music. But of late years the business had not been paying, and finally the proprietor went bankrupt and was sold out. The place was shut up for several months before the shop was let to a firm of dealers in fancy articles, and the other part was then transformed into flats. Rushton had the contract for the work. When the men went there to do it up, they found the interior of the house in a state of indescribable filth, the ceilings discoloured with smoke, hung with cobwebs, the wallpapers smeared and black with grease, the handrails and the newel posts of the staircase were clammy with filth, and the edges of the doors near the handles were blackened with greasy dirt and finger marks. The tops of the skirtings, the mouldings of the doors, the sashes of the windows, and the corners of the rooms were thick with the accumulated dust of years. In one of the upper rooms, which had evidently been used as a nursery or a playroom for children of the renowned chef, the wallpaper for about two feet above the skirting was blackened with grease and ornamented with childish drawings made with burnt sticks and black lead pencils. The door was covered with a similar artistic effort, and to say nothing of some rude attempts at carving, evidently executed with an axe or a hammer. But all this filth was nothing compared with the unspeakable condition of the kitchen and the scullery, a detailed description of which would cause the blood of the reader to curdle and each particular hair of his head to stand on end. Let it suffice to say that the walls, the ceiling, the floor, the paintwork, the gas stove, the kitchen range, the dresser, and everything were uniformly absolutely and literally black. And the black was composed of soot and grease. In front of the window there was a fixture, a kind of a bench or table, deeply scored with marks of knives, like a butcher's block. And the sill of the window was about six inches lower than the top of the table, so that between the glass of the lower sash of the window which had evidently never been raised, and the back of the table, there was a long, narrow cavity or trough about six inches deep and four inches wide, and as long as the width of the window, and the sill forming the bottom of the cavity. This trough was filled with all manner of abominations, 
fragments of fat and decomposed meat, legs of rabbits and fowls, vegetable matter, broken knives and forks, hair. The glass of the window was caked with filth of the same description. This job was the cause of the sacking of the semi-drunk and another man named Bill Bates, who was sent into the kitchen to clean it down and prepare it for painting and distempering. Well, they commenced to do it. But, well, it made them feel so ill that they went out and had a pint each, and after that they made another start at it. But it wasn't long before they felt that it was imperatively necessary to have another drink. So they went over to the pub, and this time they had two pints each, and Bill paid for the first two, and then the semi-drunk refused to return to the work, unless Bill would consent to have another pint with him before going back. When they drunk the two pints, they decided, in order to save themselves the trouble and risk of coming away from the job, to take a couple of quarts back with them in two bottles, which the landlord of the pub lent them, charging tuppence on each bottle, to be refunded when they were returned. When they got back to the job, they found the coddy in the kitchen looking for them, and he began to talk and grumble. But the semi-drunk soon shut him up, and he told him that he could either have a drink out of one of the bottles, or a punch in the bloody nose, whichever he liked. Or if he didn't fancy either of these alternatives, he could go to hell. As the coddy was a sensible man, he took the beer. He advised them to pull themselves together, try to get some work done before misery came, which they they promised to do. When the coddy was gone, they made another attempt at the work. Misery came a little while afterwards and began shouting at them because, when he said he couldn't see what they'd done, it looked as if they'd been asleep all the morning. And here he was, nearly ten o'clock, and as far as he could see, they had done nothing. When he was gone, they drank the rest of the beer, and then they began to feel inclined to laugh. What did they care for Hunter and Rushton either? To hell with the bloody both of them! They left off scraping and scrubbing. They began to throw buckets of water over the dresser and the walls, laughing uproariously all the time. "'We'll show the bastards how to wash down paintwork!' shouted the semi-drunk, as he stood in the middle of the room and hurled a pail full of water over the door of the cupboard. "'Yeah! Bring us another bucket, Bill!' Bill was out in the scullery, filling the pail under the tap, and laughing so much he could scarcely stand. As soon as it was full, he passed it to the semi-drunk, who threw it, bodily, pail and all, onto the bench in front of the window, smashing one of the glass panes. The water poured off the table and all over the floor. Bill brought the next pailful in and threw it at the kitchen door, splitting one of the panels from top to bottom, and then they threw about half a dozen more pailfuls over the dresser. "'We'll show the bastards how to clean paintwork!' <laughs> they shouted as they hurled the buckets at the walls and the doors. By this time the floor was just deluged with water which mingled with the filth, and it formed a sea of mud. They left the two taps running in the scullery, and as the waste pipe of the sink was already choked up with dirt, the sink filled up and overflowed like a miniature Niagara. The water ran out under the doors and into the backyard and along the passage and out to the front door. 
but Bill Bates and the semi-drunk remained in the kitchen, smashing the pails of the walls and doors to the dresser and cursing and laughing hysterically. They had just filled the two buckets and were bringing them into the kitchen when they heard Hunter's voice in the passage, shouting out inquiries as to where all the water was coming from. When they heard him advancing towards them and they stood waiting for him with the pails in their hands, and directly he opened the door and put his head into the room, they let fly with the two pails at him. Unfortunately, they were too drunk and excited to aim straight. One pail struck the middle rail of the door and the other the wall on the side of it. Misery hastily shut the door again and ran upstairs and presently the coddy came down and called out to them from the passage. They went to see what they wanted, and he told them that Misery had gone to the office to get their wages ready, and they were to make out their timesheets and go for their money at once. Misery had said that if they were not there in ten minutes, he would have the pair of them locked up. The semi-drunk said that nothing would suit them better than to have all their pieces at once and they'd spent all their money, and they wanted another drink. Bill Bates occurred, concurred, so they borrowed a piece of black lead pencil from the coddy and made out their timesheets, took off their aprons, and put them into their tool bags and went to the office for their money, which misery passed out to them through the trap door. Well, the news of this exploit spread all over town during the day and evening, and although it was July... The next morning at six o'clock, there was half a dozen men waiting at the yard to ask Misery if there was uh, any chance of a job. Bill Bates and the semi-drunk had had their spree and had got the sack for it, and most of the chaps said it would serve them right. Such conduct was just going too far. Most of them would have said the same thing no matter what the circumstances might have been. They had very little sympathy for each other at any time. Often, when, for instance, one man was sent away from one job to another, the others would go into his room and look at the work he'd been doing, and they'd pick out all the faults that they could find and show them to each other, making all sorts of ill-natured remarks about the absent one. Meanwhile, "'Yeah, just run your nose over that door, Jim,' one would say in a tone of disgust. "'Yeah, what do you think of it?' Did you ever see such a mess in your life? Calls himself a painter? Ha! And the other man would shake his head sadly and say that, although the one who had done it had never been up to much as a workman, he could do it a bit better than if he'd that if he'd liked. But the fact was that he never gave himself any time to do anything properly. He was always tearing his bloody guts out, of course. Why, did he just been in this room about four hours from start to finish? and he ought to have a watering cart to follow him about because he worked at such a hell of a rate that you couldn't see him for dust. And then the first man would reply that other people could do as they liked, but for his part, he was not going to tear his guts out. Not for nobody, no. The second man would applaud these sentiments and say that he wasn't going to tear his guts out either. And then they would both go back to their respective rooms and tear into the work for all they were worth, making the same sort of job as the one that they'd just been criticising. And afterwards, when the other's back was turned, well, each of them in turn would sneak into the other's room and criticise it, 
and point out the faults to anyone else who happened to be near at hand. Harlow was working at the place that had been Macaroni's Café, and when one day a note was sent to him from Hunter at the shop. It was written on a scrap of paper, and worded in the usual manner of such notes, as if the writer had studied how to avoid all suspicion of being unduly civil. Arlo, go to the yard at once. Take your tools with you. Grass will tell you where you have to go. J.H. They were just finishing their dinners when the boy brought this note, and after reading it aloud for the benefit of the others, Arlo remarked that it was worded in much the same way as one would speak to a dog. The others said nothing, but after he was gone, the other men, who all considered that it was ridiculous for the likes of us to expect or wish to be treated with common civility, just laughed about it. They said that Harlow was beginning to think that he was a somebody. Ah, they supposed that it was through reading all those books what Owen was always lending him. And then one of them got a piece of paper and wrote a note to be given to Harlow at the first opportunity. This note was properly worded, written in a manner suitable for a gentleman like him, and neatly folded and addressed. Mr. Arlow, Esquire. Care of Macaroni's Royal Café, till called for. Mr. Arlow, dear sir, would you kindly oblige me by coming to the paint shop as soon as you can make it convenient? as there is a ceiling to be whitewashed, hoping this is not troubling you too much. I remain yours respectfully, Conscious Pilot. The note was read out for the amusement of the company, and afterwards was stored away in the writer's pocket till such a time as an opportunity should occur of giving it to Harlow. As the writer of the note was on his way back to his room for uh, to resume work, he was accosted by a man who had gone into Harlow's room to criticise it, and he'd succeeded in finding several faults, which he pointed out to the others, and of course they were both very much disgusted with Harlow. "'Yeah, well, I can't think why the court he keeps him on the job,' said the first man. "'Between you and me, if I had charge of a job, and misery sent Harlow there, ah, I'd send him back to the shop.' "'Yes, same as you,' agreed the other, as he went back to tear into his own room. "'Same as you, old man. I shouldn't have him neither.' It must not be supposed that this either of the two men were on exceptionally bad terms with Harlow. They were just as good friends with him to his face as they were with each other, to each other's faces. And it was just their way, of course. That was all it was, just their way.' If it had been one or both of these two had gone away instead of Harlow, well, just the same things would have been said about them by the others who remained. And it was merely their usual way of speaking about each other behind each other's backs. It was always the same. If any of them made a mistake or had an accident or got into any trouble, he seldom or never got any sympathy from his fellow workmen. On the contrary, most of them at such times seemed rather pleased than otherwise. There was a poor devil, a stranger in the town, he came from London, I think, 
who got the sack for breaking some glass. He'd been sent off to uh, to burn off some old paint in the uh, the woodwork of the window. I know he's not very skilful in the use of the burning off lamp because on the firm where they'd been working in London, it was a job that the ordinary hands were seldom or never called upon to do. There was one or two men who did it all, but for that matter, not many of Rushton's men were very skilled at it either. It was a job that everybody tried to get out of because, well, nearly always the lamp went wrong and there was a row about the time the work took. So they worked this job onto the stranger. Now, the man had been out of work for a long time before he got a start at Rushton's, and he was very anxious to uh, do the right thing and not to lose the job, because he had a wife and a family in London. And when the coddy told him to go and burn off this window, he didn't like to say that he'd not been used to that kind of work before. He hoped to be able to do it, though, but he was very nervous. And the end was that, although he managed to do the burning off all right, just as he was finishing, he accidentally allowed the flame of the lamp to come into contact with a large pane of glass. And he broke it. They sent to the shop for a new pane of glass, and the man stayed late that night to put it in in his own time, thus bearing half the cost of repairing it. Things were not very busy just then, and on the following Saturday, two of the hands were stood off. The stranger was one of them, and nearly everybody was very pleased. At mealtimes, the story of the broken window was repeatedly told amongst the jeering laughter. It really seemed as if a certain amount of indignation was felt that a stranger, especially such an inferior person as this chap, didn't know how to use a lamp. He should have had to check to uh, cheek to earn his living by this method at all. Core. One thing, though, was very certain. They said gleefully he'd never get another job at Rushton's. And that was a good thing. And yet they all knew that this accident might have happened to any one of them. Once a couple of men got the sack because the ceiling that they distempered had to be washed off again and done again. It was not really the men's fault. It was a ceiling that needed special treatment. They'd not been allowed to do it properly. But all the same, when they got the sack, most of the others laughed and sneered and were glad. Perhaps because they thought that the fact that these two unfortunates had been disgraced and it had actually increased their own chances of being kept on. And so it was with nearly everything. With a few exceptions, they had an immense amount of respect for Rushton and Hunter and very little respect or sympathy for themselves or for any of the other men. Exactly the same lack of feeling for each other prevailed amongst the members of the different trades. Everybody seemed glad if anybody got into trouble for any reason whatsoever. There was a garden gate that had been made at the carpenter's shop, and it wasn't very well put together. Because of the usual reasons, of course, the men had not been allowed the time to do it properly. After it was fixed... One of the shopmates wrote upon it with a lead pencil in big letters, This is good work for a joiner. Order one ton of putty. But to hear them talking in the pub on a Saturday afternoon, just after paying time, one would think of them as best friends and mates 
and the most independent spirits in the world, fellows whom it would be very dangerous to trifle with and who would stick up for each other through thick and thin. All sorts of stories were related to the wonderful things which had been done and said off the jobs that they had chucked up and the masters they had told off, of pails of whitewash thrown over the offending employers and of horrible assaults and batteries committed upon the same. But, strange to say, for some reason or other, it seldom happens that a third party ever witnesses any of these prodigies. It seems as if a chivalrous desire to spare the feelings of their victims had always prevented them from doing or saying anything to them in the presence of witnesses, in actual fact. <laughs>